Today, we're learning how to make better decisions in business by using a simple but surprising strategy that most people overlook. And because of that, it can become your competitive advantage on the professional playing field. If you're looking to learn the art and science of decision-making, you've come to the right place. It's time to dive in. Welcome to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. This is episode 15 of season two. I'm your host as always, Ben Bradbury, and this is our penultimate episode of the season. And for the next half an hour or so, whether you want to learn a strong decision-making process for managers or making better decisions in groups, or even how to build a fast decision-making system, I'm going to be delivering practical strategies that you can use to help make better business decisions. We're going to be exploring a simple but powerful idea that you can make smarter decisions when it counts by understanding yourself better. When you're learning how to make better decisions in business, you might jump straight into the frameworks or models, but there's a step that comes before that. And if you're thinking how to improve my decision-making, then taking the time to understand what we want professionally can have huge implications across the span of our career this year and in decades to come. And if you don't believe me, let's start by getting highly practical. The first part of learning how to make better decisions in business is understanding that understanding yourself can literally make you more money. Now, to appreciate this, we have to realize there's a link between economics and psychology. And it was Charlie Munger, as in Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett's right-hand man, Charlie Munger, who said that time and time again, in reality, psychological notions and economic notions interplay, and the man who doesn't understand both is a damned fool. Now, an example of this comes from the book Influence by Robert Cialdini, where he names the six weapons of influence, and one of those weapons is social proof. The fact that the more that people buy something and the more people like something, and we can consciously see that, the more that we are prone to purchase that as well. So you can clearly see that the psychology of something is quite tangibly impacting the consumer buying cycle. Psychology and economics are linked. But if we know this, then we can take this a step further because by understanding and improving our psychology, we can improve our economic value. Now, the CEO of Social Capital, Chamath Halihapatiya, on a recent podcast interview said that by deconstructing my psychology, I'm a better person and make better investing decisions because I'm less prone to wild swings. I know myself and what I want better. Your mind is an operating system, and the best investors just know that really, really well. By taking the time to understand their psychology, they can act as impartial observers, overcoming the strife of being emotionally attached to their investments. And that's not to say that they won't still make bad decisions. Of course they will. But they are able to build a fast decision-making system when it counts in their business through a thorough understanding of human psychology. Now, you don't need to be an investor to learn how to make better decisions in business. All you need to do is give yourself the time to sit with an idea. Now, I want you to imagine a creative. They could be a writer, a painter, maybe they're a poet, but they're great at what they do. And for this greatness to happen, it rarely just comes pouring out of a pen on the first try. It takes time. The creative has to sit with their idea. 
Now, for some reason, we expect a fast decision-making system that get things right first time round. But deep down, we know that's rarely ever going to be the case. And what happens when we actually slow down? Well, we override our emotional reaction, and it lets us think through what something actually means to us. Now, you can practically apply this in the short term with conversations that you have with other coworkers, with your boss, with people that you work with. In conversation, when you're hit with something that's important, don't be afraid to say, let me sit with that for a second. You don't have to respond instantly. I've started doing this with clients and with friends, and I'm often surprised at the significantly higher level quality of conversation that we are able to have. Now, over the long term, this might look like revisiting some truly impactful ideas. I can think of at least five books off the top of my head from here on my bookshelf that I'm going to be rereading regularly. And that's because great books are like great music. When you hear a great song, you wouldn't just listen to it once and put it away on your player never to listen to again. You'd probably loop that bad boy 50 times. Well, if you're anything like me, you will. And so when it comes back to the book, you want to be coming back to those ideas regularly in the months and the years as you're progressing. Great ideas need to be recycled. And by sitting with them, we can understand them better and apply them better in our lives as well. When we start understanding ourselves and what makes us unique, we start to see reflections of ourselves in other people. And this allows us to build faster, stronger relationships. In other words, understanding ourselves enables the power of instinctive connection. Let's learn from one man's special style of instinctive leadership. On his routes to becoming U.S. President, Theodore Roosevelt became the Assistant Secretary to the U.S. Navy Secretary. And in 1898, when he took this post, tensions were high with the Spanish, and Roosevelt saw the Pacific, where the bulk of the Spanish fleet was stationed, as instrumental if war was to break out in Cuba, where the Spanish were being disruptive, which is much closer to U.S. soil. Now, with good foresight, Roosevelt had moved a force to be near the Spanish fleet in the Pacific. And when Congress declared war on Spain nine weeks later and the Battle of Manila Bay commenced, the Spanish fleet was routed, giving the US forces a considerable advantage. Now, you might be wondering why this matters, but the truth is, we can learn a lot from Roosevelt on how to make better decisions in business. How did he see the need for decisive action when others were blind? Well, in short, he trusted his instincts. The man leading the US fleet at the Battle of Manila Bay was Admiral George Dewey. Now, Roosevelt had only met Dewey a handful of times before war broke out, but he instinctively managed to recognize Dewey as the right leader in a crisis. In fact, Roosevelt said, and I quote, I knew that in the event of war, Dewey could be slipped like a wolfhound from a leash. I was sure that if he were given half a chance, he would strike instantly and with telling effect. Roosevelt pulled every string to get Dewey to become US commander of their forces. And indeed, when war was declared, the wolfhound was unleashed and Dewey's forces routed the Spanish. But here's the thing that most people miss. Roosevelt's ability to instinctively discern the right leader was unlocked by his understanding of himself. Roosevelt was famously energetic. He always craved a cause for action. In fact, he once said, I have always had a horror of words that are not translated into deeds. Roosevelt could make such a decisive judgment call because he saw traits of himself in Dewey that had given him results in the past. Both men had a love of battle 
and they had the ability to inspire troops when it was needed. And in describing Dewey as slipping a wolfhound from a leash, Roosevelt was describing how he himself would have acted in Dewey's shoes. Now, this can help us in a number of ways. This points to a powerful decision-making process for leaders. It's also a powerful decision-making process for managers. And simply, if you're just trying to lead yourself, Roosevelt is showing that you can spot a familiar pattern of potential to help understand yourself and make better instinctive connections. By taking the time to understand our unique set of skills, we can recognize those traits instinctively in other people. And we can build stronger business relationships faster because of that, rather than having to just rely on the cold, hard facts of perhaps a resume instead. Remember, your mind is an operating system. But it's time now to switch from the instinctive to the logical. Because we can make smarter business decisions today by calculating how we want to grow into tomorrow. If you don't know what you want or how you can thrive professionally, then you can't take intentional steps to progressing along some set of professional goals. And success is, quite frankly, the removal of options. When you know what you want, it removes the 99% of everything else you could potentially do. And that is actually great. Now, narrowing your focus is simpler than you might think, and you can do this by empathizing with your future self. So if I'm doing this, I might think, how would Ben in 10 years' time want me to invest my time today? What would he be happy that I've learned? What would benefit me later down the road? And the best part is, whatever you decide to learn, you have the rest of your life to improve at it. So for example, for me, I'm leveling up my ability to read the financial health of businesses right now. So learning profit and loss statements, cash flow statements, and balance sheets. And while it is tough going, I'm not naturally a numbers guy, and this is admittedly quite new to me, What I'm reminding myself is that, Ben, you have the rest of your life to master financial literacy, literally the rest of my life. So what does it matter if I move at a snail's pace right now while I'm grasping the fundamentals? And this is the same for any skill that you might have liked to try. This could be graphic design. This could be learning how to sell better. Pick up that book, do that course, because you're never going to know how that might benefit you professionally years down the line. And if you fall in love with the process of improving, then when you finally do become that future self in 10 years' time, which, by the way, is going to happen closer or much sooner than you and I think, then you might just be beautifully surprised at how far you've come. When it comes to building an effective decision-making process for leaders, there's a trap we've got to be careful to avoid. And that's mistaking our reality as the only reality. I used to think that I was at the center of my unique universe. Literally, what's to say that everyone else around me isn't a robot and I'm not living in some giant simulation? Now, as I grew past the age of 10, I came to realize that this wasn't true. Well, at least I hope so. But what I do realize is true is that this universe that I see and experience is my unique universe. In that sense, we're all completely alone because we all have our own individual perspective. And the only person that you can truly depend on to see things the way that you do is you. So why does this subject matter then? Well, you and your team are all working for the same company. But within that company, you are all experiencing multiple versions of reality and having different ways of deriving meaning from experience. Think about the way that an optimist sees the world as opposed to a pessimist. 
One sees good around every corner, and the others see demons crawling out of the shadows. Now, as children, our version of reality is largely decided for us from our upbringing. But as we grow older, we literally get to decide what version of reality we choose to experience. Now, all too often in business, we're driven to conflict because we're experiencing different versions of reality in the same world. So, for example, picture on one hand the young entrepreneurial worker who wants to make a mark. They want to take risks because they have plenty of time in their career to fail. Now, compare this to the older leader. They have to be more conservative. They have less time, and so naturally, they want to play it safer. This is the same experience, but a completely different reality for both parties. And that ideological conflict can often break down our decision-making process. Now, in order to transcend this conflict, we have to be aware of the gap between our perspective and reality. There's only one objective reality, but there's plenty of perspectives to go around. In fact, everybody has one. But it's dangerous when it comes to making decisions for our company to conflate the two. That's why it's critical when you're making decisions with your team to make sure that your team is seeing things the same way you do, and you need to separate facts from opinions. So this is the difference between saying, "Here's how I see things," and "Here's the facts." If you're trying to portray the former, "Here's how I see things" as fact, that's dangerous. But "Here's the facts" is good, and the fact is, when it comes to building a great decision-making process for leaders. That's the difference between poor decision making versus good decision making. So remember, clearly laying out the facts for your team closes the gap between subjective perspective and objective reality. Now, for our final segment today on how to make better decisions in business, let's learn why a surprisingly high number of people actually don't think for themselves. And here's what you can do to avoid being in that group. When you and I were young children, we learned to walk and talk by imitating adults. Now, if you put two young children in a room full of toys together, what happens? Well, one child will pick up one toy, and the other one instantly wants the toy that that child has. And this is Rene Girard's mimetic theory. He realizes or believes that just like walking and talking, we learn desire through imitation as well. Think back to Robert Cialdini's weapon of influence, the social proof aspect that I mentioned earlier, where if more people have endorsed a decision, the more likely you are to do it. And this worked great in our tribal societies. When the more tribe members endorsed something, the easier it was to see that we should probably do that as well. Now, there's a reason that social proof has stuck around. That's because it is an effective heuristic for making decisions. We can't deny that. But now, unfortunately, it has a second unfortunate consequence. Which is that it erodes our ability to think independently. Now, this idea of mimetic desire gets pretty damn dangerous if you're thinking about making decisions in business, because if everyone professionally wants and desires the same thing, then you end up in an environment that is devoid of independent innovation, and instead everyone trudges along a one-way path to brutal stagnation. So, what can we do about this imitation fact then? Well, if we're to believe Gerard, then overcoming imitation is practically impossible. It's hardwired into our DNA. But that's not to say that we shouldn't try and do something about it. I'm a firm believer that learning how to make better decisions in business means building a habit of independent thinking, and that comes from understanding ourselves better. 
So for example, when you're getting a recommendation from a boss or someone on your team, take the extra step to question it. Do I hold this to be true? Do I want to believe this? Make the distinction between what this person believes and the fact they're probably projecting their beliefs onto you through their advice and the decision to choose whether to embrace it. The choice is yours. Now, one technique I've found particularly effective while reading is to build a mental picture of the author's argument, which then allows me to question it. So for example, I'm reading Girard right now, but as I'm learning about his ideas and mimetic desire and the role that imitation plays, I'm making a conscious decision to keep them rooted in the book. These are Girard's ideas, and now I'm adding the extra step to decide whether I want to believe it for myself. Imitation might be part of who we are as humans, but when we share the same professional desires as all the workers around us, then we end up converging onto this undifferentiated mass of wants and needs that aren't really ours. And so when we take a step back to question why we want and why we might think that we actually want it, that might be the key that we need to unlock a strong, reliable, fast decision-making system that takes us to what we really need. So let's review what we've learned today on how to make better decisions in business. First, we can make better business decisions by deepening how well we understand ourselves. A firm grasp of human psychology has very real financial implications for investors, and it can have the same kind of implication for you by staying calm in the face of emotional bias and making better calculated decisions. I'm personally learning how to improve my decision-making and I'm going to be spending a lot more time exploring this link, and I hope that you will as well. Second is a powerful decision-making process for leaders that we learned from Theodore Roosevelt is that we can take this understanding, this self-understanding, to drive instinctive leadership. And that lets us build stronger, faster relationships than ever before. Third and finally, understand that there are multiple versions of reality and that subjective perspective and objective reality are not the same thing. Your team are all working at the same company, but they're experiencing it in a multitude of different ways. And making sure we know the difference is important in making effective decisions. And let's remember to ask ourselves why we want what we want and to question where our goals actually come from, because that puts us on the path to finding something that we singularly want ourselves and not some cheap imitation. It's important not to know everything and to have some naivety. It's a beautiful thing because often if you knew how hard things were going to be and how complex, you, you really wouldn't start them. And more on the fine line between naivety and confidence in our next episode, our season finale. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Subject Matter. If you've made it this far, I truly appreciate you watching or listening all the way through. And I'm glad that you found the ideas useful. Or at least I hope you did if you stuck around for the full half an hour. If you're watching... I would really appreciate if you could go ahead and like this episode and subscribe over on YouTube. It really helps me get some all-important support for this new channel. And if you're listening, you can subscribe over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods to stay up to date for season three, which is right around the corner. If you have any questions, let me know in the comments below. I would love to hear from you, or you can reach me directly on Twitter. My handle is at BenBradbury underscore. So without further ado, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week for the season finale of Subject Matter Season 2.